Let me read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, and then I'll pray again for us in our time. Therefore, Paul writes, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now it breaks out into a beautiful poem called the Christ poem. Because some things you have to say with poetry, some things need to be said with song. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would, in this time, by the power of your Spirit, exalt Jesus to a place in our hearts, in our, in our focus, in our minds, in our, in our lives, to where he, Jesus, you get like that center place, and all our relationships and all our dealings and all our drama and all our stuff flows from, from, from you. Things that are misaligned, would you align tonight? Things that are broken, would you begin to mend? Things that are uh, unclear, would you make clear by your spirit? And I pray you anoint me, anoint me tonight and use me, allow there to be some sort of cohesion by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into this text tonight, what I'd like to do to begin, I want to catch us up to where we are, like tonight, March 31st, 2019, and how we got here from January 1st. So from January 1st to today, how we got here in Philippians 2, why we're talking about this idea of uh, Christ and cruciformity over and over again in our series. We began the year by talking about how we can change. I did a teaching the very beginning of the year on a theory of change, and it was called um, We Can Change or You Can Change. And if you haven't listened to that, I recommend that you go back and listen to it, because there we talked about um, our theory of change that we called the triangle of transformation. Triangle transformation looks something like this. It's on the screen. Now, what we believe as a Jesus community is that as a Jesus community, we are a transformation community. That is that the Spirit of God transforms us. Now, how does that happen? And here's our best attempt at how um, God changes us. First, truth. Um, we, ch we are changed when, when we come in contact with the truth. Now, truth comes at us in life in all sorts of ways, but ultimate change, change comes through Jesus, who is reality, and re kind of orients our lives to the reality that, that, is, that is real, Jesus. And the truth of Christ hits us, comes at us in all these different ways, and then reorients our life to truth. So we believe that we're changed through the truth of Christ in his teachings and his way. We're changed through practices, that is, habits of purpose around the way of Jesus, where we habituate our lives around Jesus' teachings, around his way of life. We believe that we are changed through those practices. We believe we are changed through community, being a part of a people who are moving in the same direction, that is, the way of Jesus. And we believe that we are changed ultimately by the Holy Spirit, 
who is finishing the work He began in us. Amen? Amen. Now, as a part of this, we said we would spend a year drilling down on that community portion, not leaving the other things behind because you can't really, but really double-clicking on community and saying how and looking at and for the entire year how we're changed by community. Then at annual vision and prayer, we said that our annual theme for the year was the year of authentic community, that we were going to do a whole entire year of what does it mean to, what does it look like to, to live in authentic community? And at annual vision and prayer, we showed a video that we eventually showed to the entire church. You can get online if you haven't seen it, explaining what this entire year was going to look like, what it was going to be, the topics we're going to dive into. And then we ended this very beautifully shot video with a reading of the prayer of St. Francis. Now, if you remember that. Now, St. Francis was, uh, St. Francis of Assisi was a 13th century Italian mystical friar and founder of several orders. He is the patron saint of our city and the namesake of our city. Our city is named after him, San Francisco, St. Francis. I hope you knew that. Hopefully everyone knows that. Okay. This prayer, though we don't think it was written directly by St. Francis, is called by his name because it embodied his life mission and his teachings. And the prayer went like this. It's on the screen. Let's all read it out loud together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. That's a beautiful prayer. Now imagine, as a church in the city of St. Francis, that we embody this entire prayer. Now if we were honest, a lot of us would say we're pretty far from that prayer, which is a good thing we believe in change and transformation. But I want you to notice the progression of this prayer. It's all on the screen, kind of squished in, but you can see all of it at at once. Notice the progression of this prayer. It's broken up in three parts. It starts with a desire to be an instrument of peace. Jesus calls us peacemakers. We are to be peacemakers. We should all aspire to be peacemakers. Jesus was a peacemaker, and he gives us that sort of mantle, that sort of ministry of reconciliation, that ministry of peacemaking. But for peacemaking to happen, we actually have to be a people who show up in our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our relationships where when we see hatred, we sow love like Jesus. And where we see injury and wrongdoing, we sow forgiveness like Jesus. And where there's doubt, we sow faith like Jesus. And where there is despair, we sow hope like Jesus. And where there is darkness, we sow light like Jesus. And when there's sadness, we sow joy like Jesus. But for that to happen... There has to be these inner qualities that mark our lives. This is the second movement of the prayer. And what this prayer says is that that inner quality is self-denial. For this to even be a thing, we have to actually have this, this like inner quality of life where we're always denying ourselves in, in this way. We are not so much seeking to be consoled, but rather we're looking at life. We're not trying to look at life as like, 
I want everything to console me. I want everything to soothe me. I go to church to be soothed. I go online to be soothed. I go to bars to be soothed. Like your whole life is just so that you can be consoled. But actually there's a shift that happens where you, you live rather to console other people. Where you're not seeking to be understood all the time. So all of your rants, all of your times processing out loud with people isn't so that you're understood. It's more that you can understand. So you listen more to people. And then you rather you move your life not to be loved by people, but actually to actually love other people. Now, this self-denial, this self-forgetfulness, we need to get into our lives where we think more about, more about others than we do ourselves, where we look at others' interests higher than our own interests. But for that to happen, here's a third movement. There has to be an even deeper reality operating in our lives, and that's a reality to trust in Christ's upside-down logic. It's it's stated beautifully at the end of this prayer, almost as a stubborn belief in Jesus' upside-down logic. It says this, it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are eternally alive. All of that stuff is the inverse logic of the way of Jesus. It's the upside-down logic of the way of Jesus. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Now, if you're new to Christianity or you're exploring Christianity, this is how Jesus calls his followers. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever, wants, whoever loses their life for me will find it. Jesus is very into you finding your life. Jesus is very into you saving your life, but not the way you think. If you try to save your own life, you try to find your life by looking inward and all of that stuff, you'll never, ever find it. He wants you to find it, but he knows that if you go down this road, you're going to die. You go down this road, it's not going to have life in it. If you want life, you have to die. And this is what the end of the prayer is getting at. The way to receiving is actually giving. The way to, to pardon, and, pardon and forgiveness is actually opening our lives to forgive others and letting go of our hatred and our bitterness. And the way to life is through dying. And this here is the lodestar for being instruments of peace. Meaning the only way to be a person of peace, sowing all these beautiful qualities in our broken world, the only way to embody the prayer of St. Francis in the city of St. Francis is through this inverse logic of the way of Jesus. And that inverse logic is why, church, we are in the letter to the Philippians. This logic is what we called three weeks ago cruciformity. And it's here in front of us again in our text in Philippians 2. And here's what we said about cruciformity a few weeks ago. Cruciformity is when our life takes the shape of Christ's cross. Now, when I said that a few weeks ago, I know that that can be a bit abstract. I know when I say our lives, our Christians, are to follow the pattern of Jesus in self-denial as it pertains to the way that we relate to other people. Now, when I say that, you're like, okay, that's great, that sounds great, but what does that even look like? So tonight, as we move into this text again, I want us to ask, I want to ask these questions. Is this possible? Is this really possible? Can we really live this life, like a cruciform life in our community? Is it realistic that a whole community of people would or could live lives that take the shape of Christ's cross? And if so, what would it look like here, now, San Francisco? What sort of tensions would we have to manage if we want to live this way? What kind of values would mark this kind of community? That's what I want to talk about tonight. So to do that, let's skip down first to, to verse 5 in our text, Philippians 2, 5. We'll come back to verses 1 through 4 at the end. Let's skip down to verse 5. 
and look at Paul, what he does in verses one through four, we'll get to that in a second, but he, he starts to say, this is how you're to relate to each other, but then he shows us a model of what that looks like, and that model is Christ. So look at verse five. He says, very plainly, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now keep that verse up there throughout this point. What Paul is saying here is this. Paul is about to launch into one of the most beautiful portions of Scripture, one that's heavy with theology and pregnant with meaning around Christ's nature. It's a text that has been more debated, more written about than any other portion of the New Testament. But before Paul writes this Christ poem, this song explaining who Christ is, before he does that, he wants us to know something. What he's about to write is not abstract theology. It's not this like, here's Jesus and here's what he is and here's who he is, so debate about it for 2,000 years. He wants us to live out this theology. He wants it to be embodied theology, meaning a theology he wants, to, he wants us to apply to every relationship we have in life. So what we're about to read about Jesus, he wants us to take this and apply it to our marriages, our kids, our community group, who we serve with, who we're sitting next to even right now in church. So this text is really about how we treat each other. So let's look at this text, verse 6. It's a poem now. Who, meaning Jesus, being in very nature God. Jesus, Paul writes, being in very nature God. That word being, that word in Greek can mean past tense and present tense, meaning who was and is. And so the song opens with a presupposition of what the rest of the sentence assumes, that this Jesus that Paul is writing about was pre-existent, being in very nature God. That is, this Jesus existed as very nature God before he ever humbled himself to be born in this world, before he's ever born of Mary, before he ever became Jesus of Nazareth, he always was, who being in very nature God, being meaning already was very nature God. Now, this word very nature God is the Greek word morphe. Some of your translations, if you have a different translation than NIV, say in the form of God. This word morphe means the exact representation of the real true thing or that which truly characterizes a given reality. So what Paul and the earliest followers of Jesus said and believed about the human Jesus of Nazareth was that he was by, in his very nature, in his very essence, God, not meaning that he was like God, but really not God, or that Jesus was like a man who had the spark of the divine in him. That's not what Paul is saying at all, but that Jesus was by very nature God himself and always was, existed before he was ever Jesus, always existed as God. And he was all this before he ever took on the human nature of a servant, taking on any sort of human likeness. He says this, Jesus, who, being in very nature God, goes on to say, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The verse, I love, I love this verse in the NIV, if you have NIV. The word Paul uses here is literally that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Some of your translations say grasped or seized. The word has overtones of being selfish or taking advantage what this means is that Jesus, who was equal with God due to his very nature as God in his preexistence, did not act like many, of many people expect him to act, or maybe you would expect him to act, 
like the other, quote, gods or the other lords or the other leaders. Now, how do other gods and other lords and other leaders act? Think about some of the richest, most powerful people in the world. Why do some of them hold on to all of their money even though they couldn't spend it in a lifetime? Why do they need so much power? Why do they need so much wealth? Why do they need so much? And why do they keep it all or most of it? Maybe they have some philanthropic sort of ventures, but why for the most part they keep it all? And the answer is because it's theirs. And they might say, I've earned it, I've inherited it, I've fought for it, whatever it is, it's mine. Why do gods and lords and leaders and people hold on to power, hold on to wealth, hold on to things, and use it to their own advantage? The answer is because it's theirs. Now, how did Jesus act? He's God, preexistent God, very nature, exact representation, God. How does he act? He makes himself nothing. He doesn't use the reality and the fact that he is very nature God to his own advantage. He doesn't grasp after that. He doesn't keep that power. He actually moves in the other direction. This whole poem is about, well, first half of it is about Jesus moving in a certain direction. He sees his creation that he made. It's broken. It's bent. It's in need. And he acts. And he acts in a way where he gives up. He lays aside. Verse 7. Rather, he didn't use the fact that he was preexistent God to his own advantage himself. He didn't hoard it himself or keep on to it himself. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant. In Greek, that word means literally slave, being made in human likeness. Now, that, that little phrase, he made himself nothing, is the Greek idea or the Greek word kenosis. Some of your translations say he emptied himself out. This is a metaphor. This means that Jesus poured himself out. He emptied himself out. How did he empty himself out? How did Jesus empty himself out or make himself nothing? Kenosis, according to Paul, it says in the very next phrase, by taking on the very nature of a servant. Now, the word very nature is the same exact word from the last verse, morphe, meaning Jesus was morphe God and very nature God, and he was morphe servant very nature servant. And what this means is that Jesus was in the form of God and Jesus became in form of a human, a slave, a servant. This does not mean that Jesus stopped being God when he became human. He didn't like, I'm not longer God, I'm now all human. No, he was in the form God and then took on form human. He was morphe God and morphe human. Or you might say 100% God and 100% human. He wasn't like 50-50 or whatever. He wasn't like, like, like a demigod. You know, like if you live in New England, you think, um, what's the quarterback for the Patriots? Brady. Like Brady's like a demigod if you live in New England, right? That's like, it's like he's not like that. Okay? He's like 100% God and 100% human. And it was more like he, didn't, he, didn't, he added to his humanity. He added to his, his, his nature humanity. He didn't, he didn't subtract from it. Now, to, do, to add humanity, he had to empty himself out. He had to pour himself out. He had to become nothing. He had to lay aside the reality that he is God, and he didn't use any of that to his own advantage, but actually took on the form of a servant. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In very nature God, Jesus emptied himself, 
in appearance as a human, he humbled himself. Look at the, look at the movement. As very nature God, what he did as being God, he's like, I'm going to empty myself, pour myself out to become a human. And as he was a human, it says he humbled himself. The movement keeps going downward and downward and down. It moves down from God not using that status to his own advantage, but emptying himself to become a human servant. And as a human servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, an obedient servant to death. And not just any death, death on a cross. The cross is the most humiliating way to die in the first century. I tried to talk about this three weeks ago, and I tried to talk about how humiliating the cross was and how offensive it would say would be to say in the first century that your Lord was crucified on the cross and you worship Him. And I tried to use analogies, modern analogies, and, and both morning and night service, I had people come up to me and say they were offended. I was offended when you said that thing about, that, and, and, um, and I would I apologize, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you, and then I, and I thought about it, as I walked away, I'm like, wait, maybe I, the analogy was good then, <laughs> because I think that was like, what? Like, when you said that in the first century, that my, our Lord was crucified, that was offensive. Just to think that Jesus died, and in our, like, an, again, analogy, does not really happen, but to say that you worship a Lord who died as a slave trader who molested kids, you would, you would, that's offensive. You know, let's say that, and you're like, well, that's, you can't put that on Jesus. He, that, you don't understand how triggering that is, you know, it's how bad that is, you know, and I'm saying, yeah, that's, that's exactly how offensive the cross was. Was Jesus guilty? No. He wasn't guilty of things they accused him of? Absolutely not. Actually, the people who were crucifying him were guilty, but he was dying for their sin and became sin. He became a curse. So if you notice, the poem has three lines in each stanza. Each stanza has three lines, but in the third stanza, stanza has four lines. And the fourth line is, even death on a cross. This is supposed to stand out. Paul's like, he was God. He is God, existent, very nature God. And the fact that he became a human, and not just a human, but a slave, and not just a slave, but one that died, and not just one that died, but one that died on a cross, that movement. But then verses 9 through 11, this is the resurrection, the ascension. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what we will celebrate in just three short weeks from now. Spoiler alert, okay? Now this is a direct quote. What Paul is doing here is a direct, direct quote from Isaiah 45, verses 18 18 through 24, where God says through Isaiah the prophet this. God says, turn to me and be saved. All of you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I myself, by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear, they will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. And so what Paul is doing is saying that this Lord, this, a word that, 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 that an that a observant Jew would never say Yahweh, this, this name, they, would, they wouldn't say Yahweh, they would say Hashem. This name, Hashem, has a name, and his name is Jesus. And so Paul takes that, the name that is above every name is Jesus. And at the name of 
at the Hashem of Jesus, the name Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. He takes this Isaiah passage, says this is Jesus. And what God has done is he's exalted Jesus to the name that is above every name. If you want deliverance, if you want salvation, if you want strength, it's through the name of Jesus. He's the, he is the name by which all people should be saved, as it says in Acts. Now, you may be reading this and thinking, well, this is a very fun story. It's a hero's journey. It sounds like a hero's journey. It, that, that, the hero's journey is a story that is old as time. Every religion, every culture had a hero's story in ancient novels and Greek myths. And even our modern stories has a hero's story where the hero or heroine is at the heights of fame and success and status, and it traces their rapid descent into the depths of humiliation brought on by fate and life and things that have happened to them. Then with surprising brevity, the stories recount the main character's vindication by the gods or by society, and they're delivered through some acts, rescuing them from death into their victory. Okay. Now, we've heard that story a thousand times, and you may be thinking, what's, this, what's different about this Jesus story? It just sounds like another hero's journey. It just sounds like another story among the other thousand stories that is in antiquity. What makes a story different? Lynn Colick, in her comment, commentary, Kohik, in her commentary on Philippians, says that the Christ story is different on two fronts. First, Christ initiates his own humiliation. God, very nature God, he initiates it by becoming a man, and then he's the one who becomes obedient to death and then goes lower, death on the cross. He initiates his own humiliation. He is control, in control the entire time of what's happening, and he does it for our sake. Second, God does not act to save Christ from death on the cross. What you would imagine to happen in a hero story is Jesus is on the cross, everybody's mocking him, and then boom, boom, Jesus pulls, rips his hands from the, the nails on the cross and does this like dismount from the cross, sticks it, lands it, comes up and like everyone falls back and then angels come and you're like, oh my gosh. Like that is a hero's story, but that's not what happened. Jesus dies naked and bleeding and barely able to breathe on the cross and then the end and it dies with him. It's done, they put him in a grave and then Jesus defeats death. That is not the story. That's the story. That's not a hero's story. He, Jesus dies at the end of the story. He dies. God doesn't save him. Actually, the opposite happens. God calls him to go there. Now, she says these distinctions are crucial in distinguishing Christ as Lord and, and critiquing the pagan view of earthly status. See, Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's the founder of our religion and the Lord and, our, and Savior. This is how he saved us. Philippians 2, this poem, is how he saved us how the inbreaking kingdom of God was brought to us, how he saved us, and not only how he saved us, but how he wants us to orient our lives in continuing his kingdom here on earth. Now, this is a creed. This is a creed that's been said for thousands of, a couple thousand years. This is a creed that the church believes, like, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Yes. Do you believe that Jesus was in very nature God? Yes. Like, it's a creed and now you might not believe in it. You might debate it. We can debate it all day long, but that's not the point of this, this passage at all. The point is not that you and I debate on the divinity of Christ or the deity of Christ. This is about how we treat each other. All of this is about how we treat each other. This is not static theology. This is not something you debate about if Christ was divine or not. This, the real point of this text is how we treat each other. It is a pattern. It is a shape our relationships should take as we follow Jesus Christ. So let's get back to the first few verses and back to our question, is it possible? 
is it realistic that a whole community of people could or would live lives that take the shape of Christ's cross? If so, what would it look like here and now? What sort of tensions would we have to manage? What values would mark this community? Look with me in verses 1 through 4. First of all, the first thing that Paul's doing in verses 1 is he's cashing in all of his pastoral chips. He's like, do you, do, you ha- do, you love, do you love Jesus? Do you experience Christ's love? Do you experience Christ's compassion? Do you, do you have the Holy Spirit? Okay, then make my joy complete. Take it all the way. I have so much joy when I think of you, but like make it complete. Do me a solid. Come on. And he's like cashing in it all. Like I want this more than anything. I want this so bad for your community. What is it that he wants? He wants, verse 2, he wants unity. He wants unity around what the church thinks. He wants unity around the way the church loves. He wants unity around the way the church is or their spirit. Like if I went to different community groups, like every community group would have the same spirit in it. And that's what he says in verse 2. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And he's very specific, though. He's not like vague. He's like, it's not like if I told you, if I showed up at church and like, hey, guys, love one another. And you're like, oh, gosh, I love our pastor. He just tells us to love each other all the time. But Paul's really specific. He doesn't say, hey, love each other. It's a very specific way he wants there to be love and unity and the same spirit. What is that way? Look at verse 3. Don't be selfish in your ambitions. Don't be vain. Rather, in humility, value the people in your church above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. He makes it very, very real. Now, what might this passage look like practically? And this is where I want to get, try to get practical for the rest of our time. On Monday night, this last Monday night, I met with um, our content team. Now, our content team is made up of uh, Matt um, Barrios oversees our content team on our staff. It's made up of people in our church um, that work full-time jobs and are married, have kids, have family, single, a whole array of things, serve in our church, and then sit on a team that every week they curate and write the community group material that you get to go through on group. And I was in a meeting with them, with Matt and Kyle and Eli and Chloe and Nancy and Emily and David this last week. And on Monday night, I kind of gave them what I thought Philippians 2 was saying, what I thought, like, what I thought was like informing Paul, and what I thought, like, what Paul was saying about the community, how they were to live. And then from that, as we were talking, we were talking about what kind of values would we wrap around this kind of, if our, if our church was a cruciform community, what kind of values would guide us? And then what kind of tensions would we manage? So what I'm about to share next is, is from our content team. It's from people who live and work in our church that are like you that are saying, this is the kind of thing that should mark our community. So this isn't necessarily even coming from me per se, but from them, and I think it's brilliant. And so I want to share it with you now. Here's the values of a cruciform community. First, according to Philippians 2. First, unify around Jesus and a common commitment to his way of life, unity. This will be up there for a second. Second, contribute to building the community you want to see. Don't just consume it. And third, move opposite your survival instincts. If you fight, turn the other cheek. If you flee, stay engaged. If you freeze, take action. Let me say a few things around each one of them. Keep that on the screen. First, unify around Jesus and a common commitment to his way of life. Reality San Francisco. This is a thing. This is reality. How we treat one another is right here. 
I just want to say it and get it out. This is how we should expect to show up in our lives in community and what we should expect from other people. We are a Jesus community. This is what we expect. So I just want to say it to the entire church all at once. This is a reality. This is truth. This is how we're living. This is what we're aspiring to. This is Jesus' way of life. Now, will we fail? No, we'll never. Yeah, of course we're going to fail. <laughs> we're going to fail, but we have the Holy Spirit to help us grow. We have grace in this community because Jesus' Spirit is a spirit of grace, but we know where we're going. This is where we're going. This is what authentic community means, what it looks like. It's the way of Jesus. The spirit that rose Christ from the dead is alive in us, and that same Holy Spirit that empowered Jesus to bring the kingdom of God in the world is, will be the same, the same way we bring the kingdom of God in the world, and not just by his spirit, but his spirit will lead us on the same road as Jesus. What is that? A road of self-denial. That's, the spirit like knows, this is how I'm bring, bringing the kingdom into the world. Jesus modeled it, a life of obedience and self-denial. Church, you have the same spirit. This is exactly how the spirit will lead all of us. Now notice in verses one through four, the emphasis and the exhortation are primarily on the community. The community is to live this way, but obedience must begin with the individual. He's telling each one of them to care like this. So of course it's all of us, but it has to start with me. Second, contribute to building the community you want to see. Don't just consume it. Now, what kind of community do you want to see? See number one. Okay, this should have a little asterisk. What kind of community do I want to see? Not your own one that you make up, but number one, around Jesus' vision of the way of life. Now, here's the truth. When we hear things like, God will complete the work he began in you, that was chapter one, and have this same mind in you as Christ had, that's today, what we tend to do is we tend to hear both of those verses like this. God is still at work in me, everyone, so chill out. Everyone, God's still at work in me, everyone chill. Okay, God's going to complete the work in me, everyone chill. And then when we, t we tend to hear the second one that, that um, have the same mind in you as Christ had, we tend to expect people to treat us like Jesus would treat us, where it's exactly the opposite. When Paul says... Um, that God will complete the good work that he began, he's thinking of the other. So he wants you to look at each other saying, God is going to complete the work, good work in you. God is going to complete the good work in you. So it offers like a lot of grace there. And then when it says that each one should have the mindset of Jesus, he's talking about taking that in for me. It's the opposite of the way that we hear this, a huge difference. I am to take this cruciform life personally and I'm going to, I'm going to give you grace because God's still at work in you. And he's still at work in me, but the emphasis is on He's still working you, so I'm going to offer you grace. That kind of environment, we can actually contribute to building this sort of thing. Now, we're not just like people who sit here and consume this sort of community, that we're actually contributing to this community. Now, will there be some consumption of this community or some of that life of this community in our lives? Of course there will be. And at certain times, there'll be more than other times. But we know we are here to contribute to this in all these different ways. Now, number three, Move opposite your survival instincts. I love this one. Now, in the spirit of valuing others above yourself, that's verse three. Valuing others above yourself, we must move opposite of the way we want to survive. Jesus does this on the cross. Even his community is telling him, no, don't go to the cross. Jesus himself, when he's about to go to the cross, 
tells the Father, Father, take this cup from me. But what Jesus does, fully human, is he always moves opposite his survival instincts and moves toward self-denial. So what that means for us is that the best way that we can value other people above ourselves is to start to, um, to move opposite these survival instincts. So if you, if you fight, if you're just someone who's like this, need to be against all the time, you're always challenging, it's probably good for you to sit and listen and just turn the other cheek, even when someone bugs you and says the wrong thing. Move beyond your survival instincts to serve that other person. If you flee, if you're just a person who just runs all the time, every single time there's conflict, you just want to run, stick it out and stay engaged, no matter how much energy it takes from you. Even if you have an early morning meeting the next day, stay engaged. If you freeze, if you're just like, oh, and then everyone, everyone's arguing or whatever, and you're like, just go away. You're like, you like kind of cocoon up. Take action. Say something. Um, one of the ways I've learned this pretty beautifully and uh, frankly very scarily, is scarily a word? I don't know, um, is this, when my wife uh, gave labor to our, our daughter, Juniper, no one told me from a, a guy's perspective how crazy labor is. And I get why they don't because it's not really about the guy at all. I mean, she's the one in labor. But no one told me until like, like two weeks before Ash gave birth, like everyone's crazy story of their wife giving birth. And I'm like, bro, why are you telling me this now? And I just got, I got, I got really afraid where I was starting to hint, Ash, do you want me, do you really want me in the room? I mean, I could be like, <laughs> are you sure? I mean, is there, there going to be enough room for me? Do you want a guy in there? Are you sure you want a guy? Like, like I was like doing that. I, I, and she, obviously she got very angry at me. And, um, <laughs> I'm like, so everything in me wants to be there for you, and I can't wait to see my daughter. And then part of me is like, my, if you, uh, one of the personality tests um, that you can take is called the Enneagram, and my Enneagram type is the need to avoid pain. So th that pretty much everything I'm afraid of is like happens in labor, right? So <laughs> like the, some of the worst pain ever, and I just wanted, with everything in me, to, I wanted to avoid it. And then I found myself getting very anxious and very fearful and then angry because underneath anger is always fear, so I would get angry. And I, I had to finally go see a mentor of mine who said, lock yourself in the room. Don't leave. Stay as close to her as possible through the whole entire thing. And it was the, obviously the best decision that I made. It grew me so I saw the, a beauty in Ashley and a strength in her I've never seen before. And then the whole labor community, it was amazing. Um, and it was, it was like... <laughs> It was so scary. Um, <laughs> and sometimes I would just close my eyes and like push my head up against Ashley's head and, and like count with her. And like, I don't want to see anything. I don't want to see anything. And then our doula, who's our friend, like, Dave, look right now. I'm like, I don't want to look. I was like, <laughs> anyway, so moving, I'm getting hot up here. I just even thinking about it. <laughs> moving opposite. Your survival instinct does something in you. Like, I'm here. What, what kind of person do I want to be? I want to be a person who's like there. I want to be a husband who's there when her, his daughter is born. I want to be strong for my wife, and I want to be there. I want to be a, a good partner and a good coach, all this stuff, whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing. And my survival instinct says, um, go smoke a cigar in the lobby. Like, that's what, my, that's what I wanted, you know, like my survival instinct said to do. All pain, just avoid all pain. But there is something about when we step into this. This is a really practical and important way of valuing someone else above yourself. Like, what do you want to do to survive right now and you move opposite of it? Okay, next. 
we have three tensions to manage. This is where I'll end. Here are the three tensions we have to manage in a cruciform community. Number one, enjoy your abundant life and serve others self-sacrificially. Bless others through generous giving and bless others by receiving from them. Graciously accept community as it is and lovingly hope for what more God is making. So a few comments on these and we'll end. First, enjoy your abundant life and serve others self-sacrificially. Being a Christian doesn't mean you can't enjoy the life that Jesus has given you. Cruciform living does not mean you're always sad or you're always looking for a way to not have fun or always looking for a way to die. What it means, what it means is that you are opening the abundant life God's given you to other people in ways that feel self-sacrificial and not self-protective. Because what happens when God starts giving us abundant life, we automatically jump into a scarcity model where we think, or scarcity mindset where we think, I have to protect what I have now. I have this good life, I have to protect it. I'm finally, things are good right now, and I'm not going to take on that commitment because finally my rhythms are good. Finally, God's blessing me. Finally, I feel like his goodness is coming in, so don't, don't, don't kill my vibe. And we, we, we actually move in, into self-protection where what we need to be doing is all, when we enjoy the life God's giving us by opening it up to other people self-sacrificially, that feels like not self-protection. Does that make sense? Second, the other tension we have to manage is we have to bless others through generous giving, and we have to be the people that can receive a blessing. Now, this is hard for some, uh, some people. This is like in the spirit of not looking to your own interests, but the interests of others. Some of your interests in here is I want to keep serving. I don't want to keep helping in order to hide from people. So if I'm always helping, I'm always serving, I never have to answer the question, how am I really doing? I could just stay busy by serving. Now, my wife tends to fall into this category. She's done a lot of work in the other direction, but she often hides just by helping and serving and meeting people's needs and has come to a place in life where she realizes that people serving her or helping her is a blessing to them as well. And sometimes it's really hard for my wife to receive it. Like, we get these, like, meal train things where people bring over meals for us since we had a baby. I don't know, like, the gift of having a baby is, like, here's a meal, but it's the best thing ever. And my wife feels like sometimes, Ash feels guilty sometimes. Like, I feel like people bring us meals. And then she, she would have to remind herself, it's a blessed, people find it a blessing to come over and bless us like this. And so I want to be a blessing to them by letting them bless me. And I'm like, amen to all of that blessing. Whatever's going on, I want all of it, right? <laughs> so this is really important right here, that we, we both bless and receive blessings. Third, lastly, graciously accept community as it is and lovingly hope for what, God, what more God is making. I'll just be really honest with you. We suffocate people with our ideals of community. We crush people with our ideals of community. I have been crushed by people's ideals of what I'm supposed to be in community, and I have crushed people with mine. When we put on people, this is what, did you hear that sermon? Did you hear that thing? This is what our community is supposed to be. Oh my gosh, this community is not that. I'm so out. Like, we crush other people, and people can't get around sometimes our own ideals. We have to accept community for what it is. This is just a messy community right now. And we might be messy, but we have to hold up Jesus' ideal and hope that we are going to move graciously toward that ideal. And we're going to forgive one another for not being good at this. 
and we're going to realize that in this forgiveness and this space to grow, we will actually become these kind of people. We need to just accept this is our community, and it might be messy, and it might be kind of weird, and we might all come from different places, but we're just going to accept it, and we're going to say, this is Jesus' ideal. Let's keep moving in this direction. So there they are. This is, I think, um, I think a very practical way to move forward in, a cru- in being a cruciform community, a community that is marked by Jesus' movement downward to bring us life. As we end, would you stand with me as we read this prayer again? And we'll read this out loud, and then we're going to sit silent for just a couple moments. It's on the screen, this prayer of St. Francis, one more time, as like a stubborn belief that this is possible in this community. Let's read it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.